Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Associate Professor Stephanie Collins about social responsibility or culpability. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Beth. It's great to be here. So, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so I first came to philosophy as an undergraduate student in New Zealand, as you can probably hear from the accent. Um, and my undergraduate study was mostly um, kind of continental philosophy, uh, existentialism, I did a dissertation on Hegel. Um, and then I sort of thought, okay, well, that's philosophy, that's done. Better go do something now that's relevant for the real world. Um, so I went and did a master's in public policy, actually. Um, and it was while doing the master's in public policy that I kept getting drawn back to philosophical questions, including the kinds of questions that I think we're going to talk about today. So questions like, you know, which, let's say, entities in our society can we hold responsible? What does it mean to hold the government responsible, to hold a corporation responsible? These kinds of questions. Um, what kind of is the basis of, you know, the freedom and equality that we try to realise in a, in a liberal democracy? these kinds of questions that came up a lot during the public policy degree, but of course we never kind of directly addressed at their foundations. So that's why I went back to philosophy for my PhD. Um, I got my PhD from ANU at, um, in 2013, um, taught in uh, the UK at University of Manchester for five years, and now I'm back in Australia at Australian Catholic University. That's, that's great. I'm glad you kept coming back to philosophy. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it that inspired you to study social responsibility or culpability? Well, it was really um, the fact that we, the concepts of responsibility and culpability um, seem to um, be under-theorised and under-addressed in our social world. By that I mean um, the the entities that are culpable for bad, certain bad states of affairs often aren't the ones who take responsibility for remedying them. So you might think about, for example, corporations being responsible for environmental degradation, but who takes responsibility for that? Well, often it's activists or you know, civil society organisations. So you have the, the folks that are culpable being quite separate from the people that are actually taking responsibility for various problems. So it's kind of, um, I saw this kind of disconnect um, out there in the world and thought this is something that really needs to be theorized. Um, what kinds of um, entities can we hold responsible, can take responsibility, can be culpable for certain kinds of problems? How can we kind of use our theories of responsibility and culpability where those kind of you know, different things, taking responsibility for something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're culpable for it and vice versa. Um, how can these, how can theorizing these concepts kind of help us to move forward as a society was kind of my starting point. At the moment, it's September 2020, and the Australian government has brought in rules such as social distancing, curfews, and not travelling any more than five kilometres from your home. Are people who don't abide by these guidelines complicit in causing other people's deaths? This is a, a really interesting question that really gets to the heart of um, culpability and social responsibility. This case, this time, not for um, 
large scale entities like states and organizations, but this time for individual humans. Um, so I think it's really easy to think that with um, large scale social problems, so you know, the pandemic is one, climate change is another, poverty is another, this is not, you know, the only, coronavirus isn't the only kind of large scale social problem that we face. But with these kinds of problems, it's very easy to think that the actions of one individual um, don't make a difference. Um, it's very easy to think that um, uh, me you know, violating whatever rules are in place at the moment um, with coronavirus restrictions, or say me not giving to a charity or me not uh, trying to lower my carbon footprint to take other examples. Um, it's easy to think these are actions that don't make a difference and therefore um, it's, it's fine not to do them. I think um, this is the wrong way to think about it though. Um, and you can think about, you can see how this is the wrong way to think about it um, when you think about a slightly smaller scale case. So an example that kind of gets the imagination going um, is um, imagining that you know, you're standing um, standing uh, on, on a hill uh, and there's a boulder rolling down the hill that's going to kill some people at the bottom, right? And you, you can't stop the boulder on your own. There's a lot of you standing around, dozens of you standing around. If all of you kind of ran and, and, and you know, try to hold on to this thing, um, you'd, be able to, you'd be able to stop it from killing the people at the bottom. And that kind of concrete and slightly smaller scale and, of course, very fanciful <laughs> philosopher's example, um, it's fairly easy to see, right, that you do the wrong thing if you just stand by, if you don't act, if you don't get involved. Even though, of course, we don't really know how many people have to act to make a difference. Even though you, you're just one amongst many, even though maybe the boulder would be stopped even if you didn't do your part, right? Maybe in that sense, you're really not what we call a difference maker. So the boulder would be stopped by other people even if you didn't play your part we still tend to think you should do your part. Uh, and so scaling up from those kinds of very fanciful philosophers examples um, to real world cases like the kinds of restrictions you're talking about, um, that's how we can start to see that um, these obligations do scale up to the problems that we now face as a society. Um, so to answer your question about um, are you complicit in deaths if you don't do your part? I think the answer is yes. We have to be very careful though about what we mean by complicity, of course. So being complicit doesn't mean um, it's not the same as committing murder. It's, it's quite a different, it's, it's a sort of more, um, it's a more diffuse, um, it's a maybe arguably somewhat more watered down um, concept of uh, moral culpability or version of moral culpability, but it's a version of culpability nonetheless. So why do you think that doing the right thing is just so difficult for people? Um, I think that's because situations that we confront as a society today, whether that's coronavirus, whether that's environmental uh, degradation, um, whether that's inequality, um, these are problems that are not like the boulder rolling down the hill in the sense that the people who are going to be harmed are not concrete to us. So they're not um, people that we can see and touch and, and whose harm we really experience in a first-hand way. Oftentimes, of course, for some people, you know that for example have had lost people to the coronavirus you know they really do know the victims and for those so for those people i think it's probably at the moment find it very easy to do the right thing in terms of coronavirus restrictions but for for a lot of us we don't have that kind of first-hand experience um and so because the people who are potentially on the receiving end of our harmful actions are very distant are very abstract they're sort of they're just statistics um, that's what makes it, um, I think that's what makes it so difficult. Um, one uh, area that I worked on in philosophy 
before I worked on uh, social responsibility was the ethics of care, which is a ethical theory that says that um, what kind of really matters in life is concrete relations of care between individuals. And this is what we should aim to preserve um, as a society and as individuals. I think there's really something to that, that, the kind of concrete nature of interacting with a particular other human makes their humanity and their dignity very real to you uh, in a way that you know, numbers on a page don't. Um, so I think that's why people find it difficult. And of course, we need to try and overcome that through engaging with fiction, um, en engaging with people, um, people's narratives, people, people's real life nonfiction narratives um, about their lives to kind of grasp distant other people as real humans. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought that point up because perhaps if the government had have had a different approach instead of saying, you have to do this and you have to abide by these rules. Perhaps if the government said, you know, we need to care for each other. And if you don't do these things, you're not caring for other people. And we know that the coronavirus um, tend, has more fatalities with people who have underlying medical issues and also elderly people. So I suppose if you if you did say to people, look, you're not caring for those people, you know, and if you've got grandparents and you've got, you know, you know other people who have other medical issues, do you think that might have made a difference? Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose we'll never know the answer to that for sure, right? Because we can never, we can never go back and test it. Um, what has actually been found by some studies that have tested this in the arena of global poverty rather than a current pandemic um, is that people when they're considering say giving to charity are often much more receptive to arguments that try to demonstrate that the potential charitable giver has contributed to some harm or contributed to some wrong people tend to think that's a really strong argument for why I, why I should give to charity. People tend not to be so motivated or feel so kind of implicated if the argument is one that's about um, benefiting other people. So you should do what's good for other people. You should act in the common good. You should um, preserve other people's humanity. People tend to not be as responsive to that, at least in Western societies. Um, so so that, that's some evidence in favour of the kind of... Um, the attitude that says, well, we should focus on the culpability that people have for deaths if they don't do the right thing. But of course, your, your question was actually slightly different, which was not, um, it wasn't, should we focus on um, the general obligation to benefit other people or the obligation to kind of maximize happiness or anything like that? Your question was, yeah, what if we'd focused on um, caring for other people as individuals? If we'd said, you're not caring for this individual person who's potentially at risk of this thing. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't actually know of any um, studies that have uh, figured out which of those two is more effective. I think it's going to be different for different people. Different people are swayed by different considerations. Um, it is true, though, that in the media, there is, of course, there's always a focus on human interest story, right? So, you know, you do have the kind of the faces of coronavirus. And actually in Victoria at the moment, there's a you know, public campaign that kind of um, interviews people who have either uh, had coronavirus, or their child had it, or they're an um, emergency worker, or whatever it is, and this is the kind of the government's campaign to try and get us to, to do our bit, focuses on interviews with these people. So I think there is an aspect of um, trying to humanise the problem, trying to focus on concrete others, um, 
you know, trying to uh, incentivize us to empathize with particular other people and care for them. I think that is there and, and it's coming through. Um, and I think probably ultimately we need both prongs. We need both, you should care for these particular other people and you should just care for humanity in general. You should care for the social good or the common good at large. And you should try not to harm other people. We should try to avoid wronging other people. Those are three quite different kinds of arguments. And I think probably we need all of them. Do you, do you think that, um, I was going to ask you, do you think that it's, some people might think it's rude to actually social distance when, when you're sort of going out and trying to speak to people. And, and I think also I noticed that I, I thought myself, look, I, I should be wearing a mask, but no one else was. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I sort of feel like I'm going to be the odd one out. Then it was only a few days later the government actually brought in that we had to wear masks, and of course everybody does it now. So, do you think that if people see other people doing the wrong thing, they're more tempted to sort of follow that lead? Oh, absolutely. So, there's a lot of research on social norms um, that demonstrates this. So, a very famous example is um, towels and hotels. <laughs> so, when the when the hotel um, puts up uh, a sign saying you know, um, reuse your towel, please reuse your towel. Don't, don't place it on the floor to be, to be changed every day because that's good for the environment. Um, if that's what the sign sort of says, then people won't really do it. Whereas if the sign says 90% of people reuse their towels, um, people are much more likely to reuse their towels. So we're, we're very kind of herd motivating. We're real, we're sheep in this kind of way. We'll do what we think other people are doing, regardless of kind of what the moral arguments say. Um, yeah, so there's, there are a lot of interesting studies like that. And, um, it, yeah, I think it shows that we are very socially minded and, um, I think what kind of follows from that is that what we really need is what's sometimes called norm entrepreneurs, right? So people who will be happy to take on the social cost of doing the right thing, even when no one's doing it yet. Um, and they'll kind of bear the, um, the almost like shame or self-consciousness or the kind of judgment of other people um, and then that'll kind of get the ball rolling you know because for every person that starts abiding by a new social norm that makes it cheaper and easier in terms of social shame for other people to then start abiding by the norms then you get kind of snowball effect what's called a norm cascade and then suddenly it's really cheap for any, anyone can do it and, and you know it's not costly you know no one feels any shame in doing it uh, of course with masks in melbourne I mean, at least in my experience, that process happened in about three days, as you say, it went from hardly anyone wearing a mask to everyone wearing a mask. And that was because it was, um, it was legislated for, well, it was uh, required by law anyway. Um, so uh, yeah, we saw that happen very quickly there. Um, of course, it, oftentimes it takes a lot longer um, and that's where we, where we rely on normal entrepreneurs um, to really to make it easier for everyone else to start doing the right thing. What is the collective approach? Um, the collective approach uh, to any kind of social problem, um, including a, the one that we've been talking about here, which is uh, kind of restrictions around coronavirus, um, is the approach that asks uh, what should we do as a group, whether that's a society, whether that's an organisation, whether that's the whole world in some cases. Um, of course, for the coronavirus case, we're more often thinking of it at a, um, a state level, a society level, or perhaps even a state level as in Victoria and New South Wales being segregated off, which 
we can debate whether we should view it as the whole of Australia or whether we should view it as the states. But in any case, that's the kind of level that people tend to be thinking at. So the collective approach says, what should we do where we specify that we might be an organization, might be a state, might be a whole nation, might be the globe, um, rather than asking, what should I do? So the collective approach says, what should we do? And what's my part in that? How can I um, best play my role in bringing it about that the group gets the uh, result that it should get, um, rather than the kind of individual approach, which merely asks about the small differences that I can make. I think if you focus on the individual difference that you make um, and asking what you should do, then oftentimes you can end up uh, very easily convincing yourself that there's no point in you doing anything. Um, kind of going back to the issues we were talking about at the beginning, you can end up convincing yourself that you don't make any difference. Whereas if you look at what should we do as a whole, that's the collective approach, right? And what's my part in that? Then you don't really go, get caught up on the question of whether you make a difference. Because um, you know that we together can make a difference. Um, and then the question is just what your individual part in that is. Why is collective action so important? Um, because it allows us to uh, solve both coordination problems and cooperation problems. So I'll maybe say a bit about both of those. So um, a coordination problem um, is, a, is a situation where we know what outcome we want to achieve. We're just not totally sure how we should do that. Um, we're not totally sure what means we should take to get there. Um, so you, yeah, in the context of coronavirus, you might think about uh, lowering deaths. Okay, we know that's what we want to do. How are we going to do it? Well, if some of us wore masks and others of us didn't, if, you know, if, if we were kind of taking a bunch of different strategies, if we were all doing a bunch of different things, that wouldn't be as effective as if we all did the same thing, as if we all took the same strategy. So uh, collective action, um, that is kind of thinking collectively and also strategizing collectively, helps us to settle on um, the right strategy in cases where we all want to make sure that we're kind of reading from the same hymn book, if you like. So collective action helps us solve those kinds of coordination problems. And then there are cooperation problems, which are trickier. These are cases where we don't just want to um, settle on the best way to achieve some goal, where we all want to achieve that goal. Instead, our, our interests are kind of pitted against one another. So um, the classic example here is, is the prisoner's dilemma. I won't, I won't go into that example. Um, a kind of a, a more intuitive example is the tragedy of the commons. So um, this is climate change is often modeled in this way. So um, this is a case where um, for, for each of us, it's in our self-interest to kind of free ride. Um, so for each of us, in the original tragedy of the commons case, there's a field and there's a bunch of farmers. Um, and if everyone farms the field as much as they want, um, the, the cows will you know, dig up all the grass and, and the field it will just become a pile of mud and it'll be ruined and it'll be no use for anybody. Um, what you instead need is um, for, it, for it to be regulated, for um, people to just use the field um, to a small extent and for everyone to use the field to a very small extent so that the field remains usable. Um, now for each individual though, um, it's still better for them to just use the field as much as they possibly can. So the farmer's interests are really at odds with one another because um, they're each just looking out for their own self-interest. Uh, so that's a cooperation problem, a problem where our interests are pitted against one another and we've got to work out how to compromise. So we, we don't share an end goal. We all just want what's best for ourselves. So we've got to work out how to compromise um, uh, amongst each other. 
And collective action can also help us to solve those kinds of problems. So that's traditionally what the state does, right? The state comes in and says, okay, I'm regulating it. Here's how much you're allowed to farm, you know, use the field. Here's how much you're allowed, allowed to use the field, so on and so forth. Um, of course, it doesn't have to be the state. It can be done at a community level. It can be done informally. Um, but in any case, so solving those kinds of cooperation problems is something that collective thinking, that is thinking about how should this whole system be structured, um, can, can do for us. Could you explain about the free rider? Yeah, sure. So I mentioned that actually just now in talking about um, our cooperation problems. So cases where um, a person might be tempted to um, free ride on other people's, um, other people's efforts. So if you imagine that we've got this common resource, say it's a field, say it's a fishing stock, and we all just want to use as much as possible. Um, there's a, and but others are, are kind of sticking within the rules. I suppose other people are sticking within the rules um, about how much they're allowed to farm or fish or whatever it is. Um, the free rider is the person who's tempted to um, take advantage of the fact that other people are following the rules in order to get the most for themselves. Um, so to actually relate it back to coronavirus, the case might be a person who doesn't wear a mask. So um, with masks, you know, they're, they're pretty good at lowering cases just if enough people wear them. And that's the case for the, these restrictions in general. You know, I can't remember exactly what the figures are, but it's something like we need 80 or 90% of people to comply with these rules. And then, you know, we'll really lower, flatten the curve and, and, and lower the case numbers. We don't actually need everybody to do it. Um, but of course, the person who says, okay, well, you only need 90% of people to abide by the rules, so I'll just go do my own thing, that person is a free rider. So that person is um, exploiting the fact that other people abide by the rules in order to take advantages for themselves. Um, and it's, it's pretty in intuitive, I think, that free riding is, is morally wrong. So um, a kind of easy case to show this. Um, is, you know, so again, we go small scale, we go concrete, we go imagine people that you know. So um, you can imagine that uh, you know, you're living in a share house and you're having to figure out um, how to pay for the internet. And um, a bunch of you agree, okay, we'll, we'll pay for the internet because this, say one of the share house people just isn't gonna use the internet at all. Okay, fine, they don't have to pay for it. Um, so you agree, all right, there's four of us, three of us will pay for the internet because we're the only ones that are going to use the internet. And then you find out two months in that this person's been using the internet the whole time without having paid for it, right? Uh, you're going to be pretty angry. Um, that's a classic example of free writing. Um, it's taking advantage of the fact that other people have set up a cooperative scheme um, and taking advantage of that for yourself. And so it's, to take the example of mask wearing, you know, we've set up this cooperative scheme where we all take on the small cost of wearing masks and the person who doesn't buy into that scheme, like themselves taking on the cost, um, is then free riding on the efforts of others. What is thinking collectively? Uh, well, this, yeah, so um, this might be uh, just to sort of summarise some things that I've already said, unfortunately. Um, but the, the takeaway really is, really is the thing that I said before, that thinking collectively is... Um, thinking about what the whole group should do and what your part is in that. Bearing in mind actually all the values that we've that I've talked about already. So it's actually a useful kind of summarizing question. Um, so thinking collectively as a way of thinking about you know, what, what should all of us do, then what's my part in that in a way 
such that I make sure that my part in what we all do um, is something that doesn't make me complicit in wrongdoing, something that kind of promotes the common good or tries to aim at the common good, something that cares for other people as individuals, and something that avoids being a free rider. So all of these sorts of constraints and moral principles, if you like, so don't harm others, achieve the common good, care for concrete others, don't be a free rider. There are millions of principles like this, right? But um, these kinds of principles should constrain how one construes one's part in the collective aim. Uh, and thinking about what we ought to do and what your part is in that, where your part is kind of guided by those principles, that's what thinking collectively roughly is. So is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Um, perhaps one thing to quickly mention is, so we've uh, talked a lot about um, individual social responsibility. So um, what should an individual do in the context of um, large scale social problems, whether that's a matter of doing harm or free riding or whatever, whatever. Um, it's also, I think, important to recognize, um, and this is partly for our own individual kind of comfort, <laughs> that individuals aren't the only ones that have responsibilities in these kinds of cases. So we've, I've mentioned the state a couple of times, but also, you know, even say for-profit corporations, um, non-profit organizations, so NGOs, um, churches, schools, all of these kinds of organizations are also, um, I think, moral agents. So they are agents that can be held responsible, that can be culpable. Um, and these are also um, agents that need to be kind of in the mix, if you like, when we're asking questions about social responsibility and culpability. And when we're asking what our part is, we also need to ask about the part that these collective agents, these, all these different kinds of collective agents should play, as well as just the part that individual agents should play. Definitely right. I mean, I think the, the government really saw this virus coming before the average person in the street. And they really took their time with bringing in regulations and shutting down uh, mass gatherings and all of that, didn't they? Uh, they did. I think it was, you know, I would not have want to be a policymaker in March this year. I think it was a very difficult time. I'm, I'm maybe, well, maybe I'm willing to cut them a bit more slack than you are. Um, I think it was a very difficult time. I think it was, it was hard to know exactly what was going to be required. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen that in Victoria now where oh, we opened up and oh, it turns out, you know, various systems went up to scratch. So now we're having to, to um, lock down again. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen, what's going to be necessary. Um, but I think it is true that uh, we rightly turn to the state as um, uh, as the kind of place that should be able to guide us in these kinds of situations because they have more capacity than individuals. They have more information. They have more evidence. They have more thinking power um, than any one individual does. So it is right that we kind of look to the state to, to guide us in the right direction. And I think earlier this year, it was, and even now, you know, it's very difficult to know, for them to know what to do. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Do you have any future study plans within this field? Uh, yeah, so the book that I'm working on at the moment is called Organisations as Wrongdoers. Um, so um, this book focuses on entities like states and for-profit um, corporations as 
uh, creatures that can be culpable. Uh, and that's why I sort of, you mentioned that at the end there as, as something that we need to focus on in addition to individual social responsibility. A lot of my work in the, in the past has been on individual ethics. So I mentioned care ethics and also kind of individual responsibility in the case of large scale um, coordination and cooperation problems. Um, but I'm now increasingly thinking that um, the systems in which we live, the organized structures within which we live and work and that we buy from and so on, that these structures also need to be held responsible. So that's my current and future um, project. Yeah, no, that sounds like very worthwhile study. So thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks, it was great to be here. I've been speaking with Associate Professor Stephanie Collins about social responsibility or culpability. Well, I've certainly enjoyed your company today and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.